Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an amazing guest. His name is Jeffrey Roach. He is the Senior Vice President, Head of National Healthcare Practice and Workforce Partnerships at Core Education. In this jam-packed episode, we talk about how healthcare and higher education can come together to build a strong community, how to build a culture of innovation inside of healthcare, how to combat burnout in the healthcare system, and diversity, equity, and inclusion, and why it is so important. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. All right, today we got an awesome guest here, Jeffrey. Uh, Jeffrey, for those who don't know, um, would you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Happy to, and th- thanks for uh, Zane for having me. Uh, Jeffrey Roach uh, currently serve uh, as the Senior Vice President of the National Healthcare Practice at Core Education. Um, and uh, lead our national uh, healthcare work as well as all of our workforce partnerships uh, throughout the country. Um, but obviously, actually, son of a nurse, um, started my career uh, in hospital administration, uh, where I had the privilege to serve uh, in, a, in a myriad of, of different director leadership roles uh, for our regional community healthcare system uh, for just under a decade. Um, and, you know, was privileged in that experience to interface with everything that you can imagine from community health uh, to digital health uh, to innovations in care, uh, strong focus on value-based care, um, you know, the launch of many different services, many different practices, medical homes, uh, you name it. And so uh, really been blessed to have had uh, sort of that experience of working in healthcare and then obviously coming into higher education. Um, and so I always tell people eds and meds, uh, when they come together, can truly move mountains um, and really can transform communities. And so I've been blessed to, to serve in both. That's awesome. And I love your term eds and meds. I, I see that a lot when you're posting and talking about it. Um, I just love that because there is a synergy that exists. And I would love to hear your thoughts about what that synergy is and how it's not being utilized properly and how it can be utilized properly. Yeah. So, you know, so it's interesting because as you know, both industries are incredibly dependent on one another. Um, At the same time, they're actually very similar. And so when you talk about innovation and you talk about transformation, both higher education and healthcare are two industries that just have not been known to be innovative and known to be transformative. However, at the core, at the end of the day, at a time where we sit today, where we're talking about the need for more pathways, uh, we're talking about the need for more clinical research, uh, we're talking about discovery, we're talking about, you know, uh, whatever that case may be, both industries are so important to all facets of society. And, you know, For me, I learned this, honestly, early on in my career, where we were blessed to literally be right next to our state university. And um, they happened to have an entrepreneurship uh, focus as well as an innovation focus. And one of the things that we did was we built an anchor community. Um, And I'm a very strong believer in building an anchor community, which uh, for for your listeners who may not know, it's really that idea that if you're a hospital or a, a or a college or university, you have a responsibility for the community that you serve. And part of that responsibility is economic 
uh, benefit. But also part of that is how do you mobilize the rest of the community to come together and enact meaningful change to the benefit of everyone that's there. And that's really what you see when you bring healthcare and higher education together. That's, um, yeah, I love that. And I see that, I mean, there's like a crossover a little bit with like teaching hospitals and such. And I've worked in both like a teaching hospital and uh, traditional community setting and not saying one is better than the other, but with like the teaching hospital, you can definitely see like things being pushed, not necessarily because, you know, there's a system set up for it. I mean, there is a system set up for it, but a lot of it is like you have a bunch of new like wide eyed graduates, residents, students coming in and just asking questions and asking like, why are we doing it this way? Why are we doing it this way? Because they're coming from the education system and they've, you know, they've got this like utopic <laughs> dream that how healthcare should be. Um, I, I mean, have you noticed the same thing? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, without question. And, and, you know, I mean, as you know, I mean, having worked in both, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that I think academic medical centers can teach healthcare systems that haven't historically worked with higher education. Um, however, I will say there's also some things that I wouldn't want them to teach. For example, you know, historically medical, uh, academic medical centers are very bureaucratic. Um, you know, we don't need more bureaucracy in higher education. We've got plenty. Uh, just like we don't need more bureaucracy in healthcare, we've got plenty. We've got to find that happy medium um, because, you know, this is a very different world than it was uh, when medicine was first, uh, you know, first developed. And the same as higher education, a very, very different world. And so, you know, we have to be incredibly insightful around that and, and thoughtful around how we approach things. But no, you're you're 100% correct. Yeah, on that bureaucracy thing, I had a friend talk about they were trying to enact a policy, which is based on evidence. It took a year and it, nothing got changed because, you know, certain committees meet every other month, certain committees meet in six months. And it was just like this back and forth. And it's he said it's been like a year and a half and they still haven't pushed it through. So like the whole thing about academic medicine moving quickly, there are some cases to your point, like the bureaucracy where it is so slow, painstakingly slow. Um, so why do you think that healthcare and education are so behind um, in terms of innovation? Yeah. You know, it's a multitude of things. I mean, the first thing I always will point out is that, you know, both industries are by far two of the most highly regulated industries uh, by the federal government as well as state governments. So, I mean, we have to start with that understanding. Now, when once we get past that understanding, though, we know there are other industries that are highly regulated as well. Uh, I mean, the airline industry is highly regulated. And I often will say, you know, I think... Um, Again, I know it's different. You know, flying people in an airplane is very different than than healthcare. But but it's interesting when you actually unpack some of the parallels between the airline industry and healthcare, um, because lives are at stake, um, and they actually have timeouts. Uh, both the pilot and the flight attendants have timeouts. Yeah, we have no timeouts in healthcare, um, and and we probably will get to that in, at another portion of the, of the show. But the other point that I think is important is that I think we're too risk averse in both healthcare and higher education. Um, you know, we have risk management, we have corporate compliance, we have legal. And, um, you know, I worked in a healthcare system where uh, our senior, my senior vice president would often say, legal risk compliance, give me the absolute what we can and cannot do. If it has no risk to our patients, if it doesn't put the business at risk, you tell me what, what it does put at risk. If you can't answer that question, we're moving forward. And you need more leaders like that. I mean, you know, those individuals and those professionals have a critical job. But I think often, to your point, we make decisions by committee in both healthcare and higher education. 
we don't allow people to try something, learn from it, and then change it. And that's what we need to do. And, you know, I think if you look back, some of the biggest discoveries in healthcare and in higher education have been people who have been able to do that. We've got to create that model where people have that opportunity. I love that. Uh, I would love to work for a leader like that, that uh, takes that kind of approach because, um, I mean, I've had great leaders and I'm not trying to pinpoint anyone or anywhere, place I work, everywhere I've worked has been amazing. But in healthcare in general, there's like this, uh, what they call a CYA. I don't know if you've heard of that. Cover your rear end, <laughs> the A part. Well, you guys can figure, fill in the blanks there. But it's uh, it's something that's rampant. And I think, I mean, obviously, there I, I can see some reasoning for it because there are people that have been, there's a lot of legislation, I mean, uh, litigation that goes on. People have been sued, so on and so forth. But I mean, there are studies, I think University of Michigan did a study where um, they, if they, if they had made a mistake, they were just open and honest with the family. And they found that um, overall, their, their litigation just went down. It wasn't that, because it showed to the family that they cared. And also, we're all humans. I think everyone understands we're all humans. But the the thing that I think in healthcare people really get mad about is not knowing. And and we can kind of get into like how technology can help with that and burnout and so on and so forth. But that's the biggest thing that I see. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and you know, there's another point in that that's really important about that Michigan study that we have to think about is that Michigan study came out prior to the very famous now Nurse Rhonda case. And, you know, for those of us that are in healthcare, uh, particularly uh, for me as the son of a nurse and somebody who's who's worked with nurses my whole career, you know, that case was unfortunately a turning point uh, when it comes to a lot of these issues, because uh, not only uh, was Nurse Rhonda held accountable for something that was a, a mistake, but Nurse Rhonda was actually put out there by her healthcare system and not supported in 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 the normal way of handling it. And so she was really put out there by herself to be held accountable. Um, and, you know, that issue has, as you know, really impacted a lot of nurses and a lot of care professionals. Um, many people have suggested, would that have been the case if that was a doctor? Would that have been the case if it was somebody who, you know, the health system thought was more profitable uh, to the care model? And again, I'm not going to get into that debate, but I think they are fair questions. And, you know, one of the things I will always say, uh, just like yourself as a pharmacist, is there are people in our healthcare ecosystem, like pharmacists, like nurses, uh, like allied health, et cetera, who do, not, who do not get enough credit for the critical work they do, that without them, healthcare wouldn't work. It wouldn't. No care would be provided. And when, when something happens and it's a medication error or it's a patient safety error, we've got to have a just culture. Um, and we've got to support people because we're humans. And that's what other industries do. And I, I wish healthcare would wake up and smell the coffee and be a bit more supportive of their team. Yeah, no, that case was heartbreaking. I mean, on all sides, right? There was no winners in there, right? Um, the family, obviously, that lost their loved one. The nurse that was, you could tell, obviously overworked and super stressed out. I've never talked to a healthcare professional that wants to hurt their patient. Um, it's usually a consequence of the system. And throughout my life, I've grown up with, you know, it's been, it's been um, like nailed into my head. You are as good as your system. And if your system is not good, you're you're going to be you're going to drop to the level of your system you're not going to rise above your system and that was like a total system failure and it was so disheartening to see um her just getting tossed out there like garbage basically like oh we have nothing to do with you you know you've, you you know you've been working doubles and all this stuff and filling in for people and taking care of people your whole career but you know what you made this one thing by yeah you mean nothing to us and i think that not only did it change the culture that one thing 
in many ways. Also, you know, a a lot of hospitals have a no blame culture, right? Uh, where you can you can make not make a mistake, but you if you see something happening, you report it, and then a, a lot of times it goes to a committee. They do root cause analysis and try to figure it out and fix the systems. But when something like this happens, guess what? That no blame culture, no one's reporting anything, and it was just really, 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 really disheartening to see. Yeah, and I think to your point, what was also disheartening about it was the was the lack of other leaders in healthcare outside of nursing saying exactly what you just said. That's what really disheartened me was was um, we regularly come to the aid of doctors and others when things happen, um, but it seems like we just let our nurses out there. Um, you know, even in the whole burnout issues, you know, I, I'm encouraged uh, today, particularly to see what happened in New York City. Uh, you know, particularly where nurses. Um, you know, uh, got a got a good deal, um, a much better deal uh, than they had before. Um, probably not sufficient enough, but negotiation is negotiation. Um, but we need people who aren't nurses that are in the healthcare ecosystem to stand up for our nurses. Um, and that's why I've leaned in, not just because of the influence of my mother, um, but but again, I started in my career with a nurse CEO, and so I've been blessed to have uh, nurse leadership around me my whole life. But the reality of it is, is that I'm a firm believer that uh, patient safety, if you look at the field of nursing, nurses are driven by patient safety. And there's so much we can learn from them, just like pharmacists are driven by patient safety. I mean, you know better than anybody. When you look at your schooling, it's all about patient safety. Uh, Nurses, too. Doctors, actually, not as much. Uh, When you really look at the core curriculum, comparatively to some of the other fields, even nurse practitioners have more. And so, you know, I think think we've just got to be a little bit more thoughtful uh, and caring in these situations. Yeah. I mean, the thing that, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. And the thing that I, I appreciate about nursing in general as a profession that I wish more, I wish pharmacy would take this from nursing is the fight that nursing has. And I love it. And it's, it can, you know, like, you know, when, when you're in the hospital, you know, it can get a little, you know, like adversarial with us in the nursing, but you know, I, I, they're always fighting for their patients. And I just love that about nursing staff. And they don't care if they're making your job a little uncomfortable. They're the ones dealing with the patient. And that fight keeps going up to leadership. And you see, like, you'll never see pharmacists go on strike. You'll never see that because the way we're wired, the way we're doing. But, like, you see nurses fighting for their rights, their patients' rights. And it, and that's just the one thing I love about nursing. I don't really have a point there, but I just wanted to say that that's just so admirable about the whole nursing profession that I wish other healthcare professions had. And to your point, we would be able, if everyone had that, we would maybe come together and fight for each other rather than fighting in our own silos. You know, it's so interesting you say that because um, I've had recent conversations with some, you know, nursing thought leaders, like, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've heard of Rebecca Love and, and Dan Weberg and, and, you know, two individuals and, and Dr. Bonnie Clipper, three, three uh, incredible nursing thought leaders. And, you know, what's important about this too, to your point is, is that they have fight but we've got to fight with them and for them because uh, they're so burnt out and tired of it. And I'll tell you, one of my fondest memories of my childhood was marching with my mother uh, on the strike. Uh, and to this day, I remember it in- extremely well. Uh, and, you know, that was in the 90s. Um, and uh, I will never forget it. And so, again, I was taught with that fight. Um, and, I, you know, people look at it and say, oh, they're just doing this to organize. No, no. They're doing this because they want to have the right culture, the right environment to take care of their patients. And that's what has to be remembered in this. And so I, I appreciate you sharing that because we have to all be more advocates for the field of nursing. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. And, uh, and, you know, and people that don't work in the hospital don't realize how 
you know, having three, four, you know, having more than like four, having four or five patients in a, in a floor in a wing is dangerous. It's really dangerous. I mean, yeah, we have safeguards and such, but some of those safeguards don't always work. Technology doesn't fail sometimes, right? And med, you know, meds can be given to different people. And if, so if you have like, imagine if you have four patients and three of them have similar issues and they're getting the same drugs, you, no one in their right mind is going to try to mix those up, but it happens because again, back to the system, right? The system will fail and we're so used to safeguards being put in place, you know, with barcodes, barcode scanning, all. but anyone who's worked in a hospital, scanners stop working, Epic will crash, all this stuff will happen. The patient still needs their med. And, you know, then the nurse call light is going off and there's four phone calls parked on the phone from family members. And, you know, there's so much going on and I don't think people really realize what is happening in the hospital system. Yeah. Good point. You kind of touched on uh, timeouts with the, how healthcare doesn't have timeouts and the flying industry does. I just, I, uh, I wanted you to kind of expand on that a little bit if you could. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. So this issue, as you know, has been talked about for so long around the issue of burnout. And, you know, somebody who flies pretty frequently, I was talking to a flight attendant recently, um, just happened to be sitting together. And this is something I didn't know. I knew, I knew pilots had, had timeouts. I didn't know flight attendants had timeouts. And so we were talking, I was saying, you know, it's interesting. I said, I said, don't get me wrong. I said, I'm not questioning whether you should have a timeout. I said, but I'm just curious from your vantage point. Do you think if you have a timeout, should nurses have a timeout? And the flight attendant was like, I didn't even know they didn't have timeouts. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, here we go. Like, we need to hear, we need you to tell the story of why you need a timeout. And, and, you know, you know, this is, this is really important. Um, you know, as you know, our healthcare workforce, uh, far and far too often, generally healthcare people are the type who will do more to take care of somebody else than themselves. That's just DNA of a healthcare professional. When you know that from the very vantage point that's true, it's incredibly important that we develop the culture to help ensure they have what's needed to help them be the best that they can be. And, you know, you know, uh, I've heard so many healthcare people uh, leaders, professionals say, don't call me a hero because you call me a hero. And then when we're calling for help, no one answers. And that's really how people feel uh, today, especially our nurses. They really feel that nobody is answering the call to help. And I'm sure you've seen, you know, reports, whether it's the clinician of the future report, um, you know, from that Elsevier did, uh, particularly that shows, you know, by 2025, 47% of the United States clinical workforce intends to leave healthcare. You know, people aren't paying attention uh, across the entire ecosystem, whether it's higher education, uh, whether it's healthcare. Um, there are some that are, and there are some colleges and universities, for example, the ones I work with that are doing an incredible job paying attention. But we've got to really hone in on this. Um, but the problem higher ed has is that unless the culture changes, just producing more students is not going to be the solution. Because what happens now is the average nurse leaves within the first year, first 18 months. They get in, they leave because the culture is terrible. And so, um, and, and I applaud the healthcare systems who are now putting in, you know, chief wellness officers and chief caregiving officers. 
But I want to encourage those healthcare systems to go further. Just another C-suite position doesn't solve it alone. You've got to listen to the front lines. You've got to engage the front lines. And I'm going to beckon and say this. If you're an executive, you better go work the front lines. Uh, because I think when you have that opportunity to see the true impact of what's going on in the front lines, to your model, to your exact point, the, the short staffing, uh, the fact that a nurse is taking care of five or six or seven patients, uh, the fact that there may be medication shortage issues or supply issues, and they're doing more work to get that because there's shortage in the materials management team. Doesn't matter what it is. The care model is broken today. Um, and some suggest, you know, do we rebuild it? Do we build fresh? I I'm not sure what the answer is, but we've got to acknowledge that the current care model is not working. It's not going to work if we keep the existing one. So we've got to be able to make changes and we have to be courageous here. And I will tell people all the time, we've got to make decisions with heart. We've got to really be thoughtful around, these are our people. They are our greatest assets. At the end of the day, nurses, again, are the most trusted profession. Listen to them. That's all you have to do. And then act on what they share with you. I think too many healthcare leaders um, always think they know what they need to do. And they don't take the time to take, you know, to just listen. Uh, to nurses, listen to pharmacists. And again, I was privileged. I worked for a leader who who did that. Um, and, you know, we need more leaders like that. Yeah. Um, honestly, I don't have much to say. I mean, I do want to touch on a couple of things you said. Um, the hero thing really resonates with me because during COVID, um, you know, I don't want to sound too bitter. I don't want to bring back the past, but all those signs that heroes work here while we're, we don't have the right uh, appropriate PPE and being told all this stuff was honestly a slap to our face everyone in healthcare when i saw that billboard it it didn't it made me so angry because it was like a facade being put out there and you know people clapping for us and people doing this is not really helping us with short staffs with un, with, without having ppe all that stuff and i don't want to get too much into it because <laughs> my blood pressure is starting to rise a little bit but it was one of the most um, disheartening and most the thing that i've been the most angry about in my whole career was when i saw those kind of billboards and knowing the conditions that all of us were working in. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So, you know, the lack of workforce and, the, and it's happening and that's a staggering statistic you said there. I mean, I didn't know it was that high, but I don't, I am not surprised. Unfortunately, I'm not that surprised at all. Um, how do you think, I mean, how do you think technology can play a role in maybe helping with that or, or does technology add to more burnout? Yeah. So, you know, I think the key there is I absolutely positively believe technology can play a role, but we've got to invite, engage, and be incredibly inclusive of the team that's going to use the technology. So as you know, when we rolled out electronic medical records, uh, we didn't really truly engage all the medical professionals who were going to use it. We assumed that they were going to be on board with it because it was going to make care better. And, and and obviously I don't use it, but, but you do. Uh, but I had a meet, you know, I was with my doctor recently at an appointment and he, you know, he's a longtime doctor. Uh, but he said to me, he said, you know, this annoying thing over here hasn't done anything to make care better. He's like, half the time it doesn't even work. He's like, well, you know what makes care better? Me spending the time talking to you as my patient and me being able to hear your concerns so that I can address them. And so I think, yes, 100%, I think there's some phenomenal tools out there um, and new emerging digital health technologies that can be um, an incredible solution. But as I always say to every one of those startups that I ever talk to, 
first and foremost, particularly when they're nurse-led, I'm really encouraged. Uh, or if they're clinician-led, I'm really encouraged. But if they're not, you better get a clinician on your leadership team. And you better really be involving clinicians. And I think far too often we've had uh, you know, entrepreneurs who come in with, with great ideas, in, but they don't actually truly understand healthcare. And when we roll it out, even before rolling it out, I should say, we better involve them to understand how does it improve the care process? Does it make the care model more effective for our patients? Because nine times out of 10, now I'll say as a patient, I appreciate Epic very much so because I like that I get stuff. But I shouldn't really get stuff before my doctor because what if I have questions on something that alarms me and then they, they see it way later than I see it? There's these types of things that I think make it very, very challenging. I think, um, but, but in the end, I do believe there's a role for technology. I just think we, we've got to involve all of our clinicians in the decision-making process. I cannot agree more with that. And I think, I mean, I, I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek sometimes where I say, you know, hire a clinician early because we can save you time. Time equals money. So hire a clinician. But I mean, it's all in all seriousness. It's true, right? I've, I've talked to healthcare startups as well, and they'll give me an idea. And I'm like, well, have you thought about the full-on workflow? Like, you know, the, the doctor has to do this, and you have the nurse coming in doing this. You have the pharmacist coming in doing this. And I mean, and I say this a lot, but, you know, they're so focused on their slice of the pie, but they don't look at the whole picture. And that's what a clinician can do is come in and give them the whole picture. And um, so, yeah, I'm going to ble- I'm going to beat that drum right with you is you need to get clinicians on early and, uh, and not just like as a figurehead. You need them as a decision making, a, a prominent decision maker in your team, because honestly, it's night and day what clinician led startups are like and what non clinician led startups are like. Exactly. So um, there's an interesting thing that you brought up as well. Like, do you think that um, healthcare professionals should have, should be taught like innovation, entrepreneurship, things like that in school? Oh, absolutely. And, um, and we shouldn't just teach people that are in the, you know, health administration, healthcare management programs. We should teach clinicians too. Um, because there's something to be said about bringing an entrepreneurial mindset and a growth mindset, even if you're a clinician. Uh, Because at the end of the day, some of the best innovations I saw in my healthcare career came from the doctors themselves, came from the nurses themselves, came from the pharmacists themselves. Um, And we see some really incredible, you know, digital health solutions coming out from a lot of those exact same people, not just doctors anymore, but nurses and pharmacists and other care team members. So I absolutely think it should be embedded. It's such an integral aspect of the future of healthcare. I agree. And I, I think that one thing that isn't, that's lacking in the medical, and it's just kind of going back to why um, we're so behind in technology and in healthcare is we're not taught innovation. We're just taught, Hey, these are the guidelines, follow the guidelines. You know, like, this is the book, you read the book and you can't stray from the book. And, and that doesn't mean that if you treat innovation and this or that, we're going to start going off guidelines and this and that. But it it's a different mindset. It's a completely different mindset than we're we're taught in school. And I think that's one of the reasons why like and like to your point, like I was reading so many stories during the last couple of years where some of the most amazing like workarounds I mean there were there literally there were workarounds, right? I mean if you go to a hospital or a clinic or anything, ninety percent of the workflows are workarounds. And if any of those software companies went in and sat with them and just saw what they were doing, I think it would help a lot. But also it also teaches it also empowers the clinicians like, hey, I can do this, right? And learning entrepreneurship, knowing that like the, the back end of it, I think that's so invaluable. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I think um, 
you know, this is where one of those things where, you know, I was having this conversation with a colleague recently and, you know, far too often in healthcare, people immediately think, well, you got to go to the C-suite to talk about innovation. And um, that's not the case. There is innovation and a desire for innovation on the front lines. That's where you got to go. Yes, you need the C-suite, the chief innovation officer, the chief information officer, the chief nursing officer, you name it, to help in the process. But, but again, we've got to be very thoughtful around the fact that there's a lot of innovators in our healthcare system, but far too often we go right at leadership with it. Yeah, and and maybe like we can kind of tease this idea out a little bit more. Like, how do you think is the best way to set up a culture of innovation in like a hospital system or clinic? Because you know, like you said, there's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of this. Um, a lot of times, people come with ideas and they're just shot down, and it it's kind of almost like not frowned upon, but it's like, okay, yeah, great. Uh, and then just move on. Like, how do you think, what's a good way, like in your perfect system, if you were creating something from the ground, how would you create a culture of innovation? Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting when you think about it. And I'm sure you know uh, of the organization Geisinger, uh, which obviously Geisinger has been a well-known innovator in the world of, in the model of healthcare for a very long time. But um, if you ever really want to look at a healthcare system that's doing incredible work around innovation, Geisinger is a good model. And what's interesting about it is the whole innovation model is led by a nurse. Uh, Dr. Karen Murphy um, is the chief innovation officer uh, at Geisinger, actually our, a former secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Health as well. And Dr. Murphy, um, you know, who also had served as a nurse CEO herself of a community hospital, understands that innovation comes from multiple elements of healthcare, And so um, she's done an incredible job of um, of leading what's the the Glenn Steele Institute of Innovation at Geisinger, named after their longtime successful CEO. But some of the innovations that they've done have literally come from clinicians uh, in the pharmacy. For example, they launched a fresh food uh, pharmacy. Um, they uh, markets and and also had elements of of medication safety. Um, and they're actually taking medication and fresh food healthy, fresh food out to patients. Um, and that innovation came from the ground up. Now, I think, you know, in their model, they do have committees, um, but those committees are, are designed to bring ideas forward, inclusive ideas forward. Um, and then they have a model for approval, and it seems to be working really, really well um, because they've done some innovations around health at home, um, and they serve a very, very rural community of, of Pennsylvania. And there are many others too, but I think what's important about that model is you have to engage people in our healthcare system at all levels. When you do that and you embolden them and you embrace them and you encourage them, people are going to want to share their, their innovations. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll give you a little example in my healthcare days when we were building new facilities, you know, again, I let, I worked for a leader who felt very strongly that leadership and clinicians at the leadership level, our physician leaders, should not determine how it should actually be set up. He said, I want to meet with the medical assistants. I want to meet with the front staff, uh, the people who check patients in. I want to meet uh, with, you know, the LPNs and other care team members who are working each and every day. And, you know, that doesn't sound innovative, but when you see what they share, and how it leads to the clinical redesign of a facility in a manner that allows the care model to work better and allows them to feel as if they've been heard, valued, and appreciated, 
innovation occurs. And so, you know, those are some of the things that come to mind. And I will tell you that um, sometimes it was painstaking. Uh, I can remember I led a project to redesign the emergency room. And he literally made me meet with everyone under the sun. And sometimes it was like, are you kidding me? Like, I think we got what we got. And he would say, no discussion. We need everyone to weigh in. And when it happened, I will never forget all that hard work, but I will never forget when we unveiled it. Having that interdisciplinary team present to see what it looked like. The tears and the smiles that were on the face of that team made it all worthwhile because we saw that they had their ideas heard and they were part of the innovation uh, of a 90,000 patient visit emergency room. Uh, a model that clearly more and more patients were being treated in the hallway, and this would allow patients to be treated in other rooms, but, but a redesign of it so that children would go to one area, adults would go to another, and mental health would go to another, and, and a whole host of different other innovations. That's what we need in our healthcare system. Man, that's, uh, honestly, I'm getting chills and uh, <laughs> getting emotional a little bit because that is amazing. Because um, I think that what you said right there is, you know, that that person that was making you talk to everyone. And the thing is, like, you guys you guys executed on it as well, right? Like, there's also that. I, I think a lot of times there's a lot of lip service given in the sense that, oh, yeah, you know, oh, we'll just go follow. We'll just shadow them for the day. And while they're on like their phone or whatever, texting and emailing back and forth, not really paying attention. And then the, the, everything is unveiled and they're, it's literally everything you told them not to do. And it's exactly what it is. And, but it's great to see like people listening. And, and the other thing is like, you don't have to, it's not, it's not, I don't want to say like, you have to, you have to take on every single idea, but the thing is, you can at least let them know why that idea won't work. Right. Um, because there's two sets of coin, right? Like leadership sees like the bird's eye view of everything. And then we see like our slice kind of going back to digital health. Right. And maybe if they can give you a good enough answer as to why this won't work, I think 90% of people will be like, okay, that makes sense. And I think that's one of the biggest issues is just not knowing. And then and we're just being told, nope, yeah, we're, we're not going to look into that. Just tell me why, or be like, you know what? We don't know. We'll just look into it and see, and we'll get back to you. Exactly. And, and so I want to also touch on something like, you know, you, you have a huge um, passion for workforce labor and, you know, there's this kind of push being ter being pushed in digital health or by health, you know, these big tech companies is they want to replace the clinician. What are your thoughts on that? They want to replace the clinician. You mean with technology? Yeah. Like uh, with AI chatbots, you know, things like that. I don't think, uh, first of all, I think it's a terrible idea. I don't think you can ever replace the human centered aspect uh, of healthcare. I mean, you know, healthcare starts with an H for a reason. It's about humanity. Um, and so, you know, I think can technology play a role in supporting our clinicians? Absolutely. But again, it has to be technology validated by and with our clinicians. Um, you know, I look at surgery. There's been some awesome innovations there over the years. You know, the Da Vinci robots. Um, when I look at imaging, there's been some great innovations there, certainly powered in some ways by clinical discovery of AI and, and, and you know, other elements there. Um, but it has to be allowing and supporting our clinicians. I think, um, I don't think we're, you know, I don't personally feel that we're at a time in, in, our, in our country here uh, where people would be 
acceptant of that. Um, and, you know, I personally do think that, again, we have to be thinking particularly around burnout and around culture, around things that can aid and assist, but not replace. Um, I don't I don't see our clinicians as replaceable. Uh, I don't see our nurses as replaceable. And I think that's also part of the challenge we have in our culture right now is that so many leaders for so long have thought, oh, you know, they leave, I'll get another one. Oh, they leave, I'll get another one. Well, guess what? Where are you getting them from? Because there's not many left and they don't like your culture, so they're not coming. And so, you know, that's what I think we really have to pay attention to. Um, and to your point, I think for tech people, they're like, oh, well, then this is going to be the time to bring it. You know, good luck to them, because I think that um, I've been proven wrong before. Absolutely. But I do think um, if they bring a solution, my advice to them is ensure it has as much human-centered aspects as possible. Um, and make sure that it's been developed with health equity in mind, because that's one thing that frustrates me about a lot of health tech right now, is they haven't really thought about the issues of healthcare disparities. And so, you know, at a time in our healthcare system where we know so much already is still systemically racist and still systemically discriminative, if you're going to bring a healthcare technology and it's going to be new, I hope you're going to bring some solutions to that end too, because we have a lot of work to do in that area. And that's one area where I think digital health and health tech would be incredibly supportive. I, man, if I could, I can't agree with that statement more enough. Like that's the thing that gets me is like, you can't. So with me, I think that, okay, fine. You can replace certain things that we do, right? The black and white stuff. Um, That's, you know, like we can clean up some of the ERs and things like that with telehealth. And do you really need to come to the ER? You know, we could, those, th- that's where like, you know, I loved what you said, assist, you need to assist us, not replace us. And that's where the, the technologies, the healthcare startups that are like, autom- like the, I, I like to say, like, I love when healthcare, like digital health companies are autom- like talking about the boring stuff, like automating billing, automating all these things, they're giving us more time to, to, to your point with your PCP. He said, you know, what's helping us me talking to you, not me in my head, you know, in the computer. And that's the stuff that I love. And I love that you said that. Um, and I couldn't agree more because eventually, and this kind of goes into health equity, you know, there's a lot of hospitals closing down in rural areas. Rural areas are struggling. And, you know, I worked at a, I worked at a academic institution where I would see people coming from rural areas with completely solvable issues. And unfortunately, they just didn't have access to it or they kind of put it to the side because, you know, it wasn't in their face. You know, the, the closest hospital is an hour and a half, three hours away. They don't have time because they're working two jobs because they're trying to support their family. And then something catastrophic happens and they end up at an academic institution airlift to us or, you know, a four hour ambulance ride. And it's just heartbreaking to me. And it's just, it shouldn't be that way. And I think there's so much focus on replacing us rather than increasing health equity. And that's the one thing I love about technology is it's the ability to provide health equity and provide that kind of care. And the other thing is that I think a lot of health, um, you know, technologists don't always see is access to care is not the same as access to treatment. You know, you can give access to care with telehealth, but you know what? You can't do a surgery via the phone. You can't, you know, do stitches like over like an iPad, right? Exactly. And, you know, and I think to your point, we saw that in the pandemic um, where, you know, again, Given the situation, telehealth was was a major aspect uh, for some things because you couldn't get into the inpatient. But then so many people actually suffered long, uh, long time issues, particularly diabetic patients, 
um, had a lot of challenges, um, you know, because it's not the same. And, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we also live in a world where technology is not accessible to all. And so, you know, telehealth plays a role, but it can't be, to your point, the end all. Um, and to your point about rural health care, it's such an important one because um, for far long now, I mean, since I entered healthcare, which is many years now, um, we've seen, you know, not just hospital closures, but we've also seen rural hospitals closing critical units, uh, mother, baby, behavioral health, uh, pediatrics. And then, you know, obviously, in some cases, to your point, they're going hours. You know, I, I served at a hospital where we were the only hospital for some for some uh, regions that meant they were traveling over an hour to an hour and a half to get to us. And and think about that, a mom in labor uh, traveling that distance. Um, think about trauma patients. Prior to the time we opened a trauma center, people were having to go uh, an hour and a half to two hours to get to a trauma center. I can remember vividly our trauma center director looking at previous cases and saying, wow, that would have been saved uh, when we had this trauma center here. You know, that's what we're going to see when we close rural hospitals, unfortunately. Uh, we're going to see a lot more, uh, a lot more unfortunate tragedies. Uh, and we're going to see a lot more challenges that are only going to further exacerbate the issues that are, are larger uh, academic and larger facilities are already seeing. And so I'm a firm believer that this is where we have to think of it as an anchor institution. Um, and we as a, as an ecosystem of healthcare have to recognize that if we don't support our rural facilities, they will close um, because they can't keep open and our patients and community will suffer. Um, and so I applaud healthcare systems who have thought about that and recognize that you've got to find a way to support them. Uh, you've got to find a way to keep them in the system. Um, and to your point, I think it's a system failure when we let them, when we let them close. Um, I am a firm believer that there's still ways uh, to do what's right for the community. My fear, and I speak about this regularly, is that as healthcare has become larger, we've lost a lot of that local connection and we've lost the local control. Um, as you know, there was a time where we had more and more community hospitals who had their own boards of directors. Now those boards of directors all, if they're under a larger system, all go up to that larger system and their voice is not the same. Their decision-making isn't the same. And so my fear is, is that across the board with all issues of healthcare, not just rural, but all issues of healthcare, we've lost um, really that intentional leadership at the board level to ask the tough questions to hold leadership accountable. And um, so you'll regularly hear me say, when we talk about issues of workforce, to me, that's a patient safety issue, which to me should be a board issue. Uh, yes, the board has fiduciary responsibility on the financial side, but I would argue the board also has fiduciary responsibility on patient safety because ultimately patient safety equals finance and patient safety equals lives. And so the board is the board ought to be holding leadership accountable on all those matters. Um, and I just feel there's opportunities for the board to do better across the board. Yeah, no, um, the mergers and acquisitions that are happening in healthcare that are being celebrated in some cases, it really bums me out. Not because, I mean, there's, there's two, you know, there, it's like a love-hate relationship. Some of it is like, you know, they saved the system, right? Because the system was going under, they bought them out, they saved them. But then they, it loses that local connection because I think a lot of people have forgotten how healthcare was maybe 15, 20 years ago where every, you know, you had a really strong connection with your providers. You Like the more technology we've been getting, and that's one of my biggest fears with health, digital health in general, is the more fragmented we're getting. And there's more and more fragmentation. There's more and more like 
distance between us and our patients now when you know kind of going back to health equity and all that like i for me the best best technologies are the ones that bring us closer closer together it's like the you know like in in um in manufacturing they have like just in time like thing like we don't have that in healthcare we have like okay we'll see you in 3 weeks or 4 weeks and or you know what it's just like the i mean there's just so many things we can take from that and i completely agree with you that i think the board has to have a bigger impact on because there's only so much we can do in the front line you know we can only do so much we were only we can only do what we can and that's completely lost with like these massive mergers and acquisitions yeah so let's let's go back to health equity like how do you like what do you think is like if you're a health tech startup and you want to help with health, health equity like truly help with the health equity what would your suggestions to them be yeah, I mean, I think if you're, you know, if you're a startup and you really want to be intentional around helping to address health equity, um, you know, again, I would, I would definitely encourage to have clinicians and an interdisciplinary team of clinicians because um, recognizing that healthcare is so complex, depending on what you're seeking to solve, you've got to bring those experts in to help, you know, to help you figure out uh, what the solutions may be. I think beyond that, you know, we know data is like, there's so much of it in healthcare and there's still great opportunities to leverage it in a way that could be really, really supportive to, to move um, health equity forward. You know, if we think about where we are with health equity today, you know, every organization is at a very different place. There's some that have done incredible work, um, you know, some that have definitely moved the needle, but a lot of it is also systemic. And so if I were a startup, I would, I would have to acknowledge that and think about how my solution would change the system as we know it. Because in healthcare, we, we're so known to just kind of build on, build on, build on, build this app on this app and build this infrastructure on this infrastructure. But with the issue of health equity, you know, I mean, you know, I look at I look at maternal mortality. You know, how could we in the United States have such poor outcomes for black and African American moms as compared to other countries? I mean, it's just atrocious when you really look at the data. And yet we sit here and we still see it continue and continue and continue. And so, you know, there's some incredible startups in that space that I know continue to do uh, really, really excellent work. But again, they're going to do important work, but we still have to somehow get the work that they do to systemically change what is more traditional. Um, and so, you know, it's just like in healthcare for for so long, even in labor and delivery, for some hospitals to this day, they don't want midwifery. You know, oh no, can't have that. That's not evidence-based. Well, actually it is. Uh, and actually it's a service that people really like. Um, and it's something that moms like, and it's something that helps moms and so and families. And so, if that's what they want, then you 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 bring it in. Uh, and I can remember serving at a hospital where there was some OBGYNs that weren't so happy when we brought it in. Um, but again, leadership said, "Who are you to decide? If that's what the patients want, then that's what the patients get. You're not the decision maker. Patients are the decision maker." And so, again, I think it's it's this concept that we have to. We have to really think about the systemic things because to your exact model earlier, you can't change anything if you really don't change the system. 
Um, and the system is really broken. Uh, and the system is really uh, has. I tell people all the time, and I know people get angry when I say this, but the system was designed for white privileged men. That's the truth. That's the truth when you go back in history of medicine. And so when you recognize that, we've made strides, but we have so much more strides to make. Um, and we've got to really be thoughtful around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in our healthcare system. And we have to ask ourselves at all times, does this technology advance that? Does this care model advance that? Does it? If the answer is no, don't do it. Um, and that's what we're going to do if we want to true have true, authentic, systemic change. And that will also require diversifying the workforce, diversifying leadership, diversifying the board. Uh, we've got to do that. I was looking at um, a stat the other day, I think maybe in healthcare today, 10% of our executives are, are executives of color. That's atrocious. I mean, that is just 100% wrong. Uh, and then when you look at the stats of, of our, our executives that are women, we're not even close. Uh, and, and we can't just assume that they're in specific positions so, like we do so often. We've got to really be intentional here because we know that our patients benefit when we are. Yeah. Um, healthcare is a system of the haves and the have nots, even in technology, all the best, the best and brightest technologists and technologies go to these massive academic institutions in massive cities and the rural areas get nothing. And if anyone thinks that there isn't a disparity, just walk into a free clinic one day and tell me, walk in there. And just tell me how there's not a disparity because it's one of the most depressing sites in the world. You have such amazing people working there and they are at their wits end and they're doing it all for free and they're just overwhelmed. And it's, it makes me really sad to think about that. Um, but um, it, it's the, it's the truth and reality. And that's the thing that like, you know, to your point, we have to, we, I've never prescribed to the thing that it, just because I am, bringing up the flaws of a system or a person or thing that that doesn't mean I hate it or I I'm bringing it up because I care and I'm bringing it up because I want it to be better because this is what I've devoted my life to and I want what I'm doing to be the best it can be and by if we're just sitting there with our heads in the sand and being like no 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 it's fine yeah it's fine for you because you know thank god you have it well but you have to also realize that not everyone is as privileged as us like I tell people, like, I've lived a very privileged life, but that doesn't stop me from remembering, you know, what my aunts and stuff went through, or like when I walked into the free clinic and saw that, or when I lived in other countries and saw what healthcare was like there, like, it, it, it exists. It's just a matter of you opening your eyes and actually going out and seeing it. Yeah, no, and that's such an important point about going out and seeing it. I'll tell you, probably one of the life-changing moments for me in healthcare was, um, when we started to do work with our homeless patients and our homeless population, and these are patients who would regularly come and, you know, squat, as our security department would call it, uh, in the emergency room waiting area. And, um, you know, because I was so engaged in the work of the community, uh, they would call me and say, you got to find a place for them. And I would say, well, you need to have a little bit more compassion to start. And so um, I will never forget the moment my CEO and I went out and we tracked we hiked back and met them where they lived, saw their American flags flying high. Many of them were veterans. Many of them had served in the, in the most difficult spots of our world. And they were, they, had, they were in such poor medical shape 
because of uh, their lack of wanting to go to the VA because of bad care or bad experiences. And, uh, and we started to really embed ourselves and get to know them and, and meet them where their needs were at. We launched clinics uh, at two locations to help uh, make it easier for them um, so that they wouldn't feel as if they were going into a, a practice and they would get judged, uh, not by the clinicians necessarily, but by the other people that were there. Um, and the difference in the impact that it ended up making within the population was really, really profound. But to your exact point, we had to get out and see, and we had to listen. And, um, to this day, I can never, I'll never forget, um, one of the organizations at the conclusion of it was a veterans homeless organization. And they came to our CEO and and I, and, and said, you know, there's a small token we want to give to you. And it's a mug that I still have today that it says, I've got your six. Um, and for us, we, we you know, at first we said, we can't accept this. Uh, this is just what we need to be doing. And they said, you've got to accept it. You see all these people smiling because you helped them with their dental. You helped them. You saved them. They got stents put in. Uh, they're on medicine now for their diabetes. COPD has been addressed. All this stuff. And again, my CEO ensured that none of them ever had a bill. Everything was was uh, charity care uh, or philanthropic funded by the foundation uh, because she said to the community, these are our residents. If you want to get them off the street, if you want to help them, then we do it together. Uh, and that cause became very important and it was something that our government got involved in but it was work that was not only meaningful, but to your point, we never would have done it if we just didn't get out and see them. That is amazing. Um, wow. I, I need to, <laughs> I need to work for that uh, person because that that's honestly, that story really touched me because I've worked in the VA. I've, I've worked in the VA system and, and I kid you not in the ERs, especially during the winter, uh, veterans would hurt themselves on purpose like um cut themselves so in some cases break bones just so they had a place to sleep at night and it was so disheartening to see and then you see like the political discourse and all the other people behind you and I don't want to get into too much of that but you see all this you know grandstanding and it's just it's it's just lipstick on a pig right i mean you're not really actually solving anyone's problem and I love hearing a story like that because it honestly gives me hope. <laughs> and that's really sometimes what we need. And I think one thing about healthcare and us as workers is we separate ourselves so much from our patients because we have to, right? We can't be emotionally involved with every single person because we literally will not make it through the day. But I think that also hinders us from doing things like what your CEO and you you did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and to your point, I mean, that... What I didn't realize then, but now when I realize and look back, it was true innovation. Um, but it took a team, you know, and it took a lot of educating within the clinical system. Because uh, I will tell you, not everyone was on board with it uh, from the start. Um, but as people learned the difference in the impact they were making, nobody was against it. Everyone was with it and for it um, and saw the difference. Because guess what? We were also not, we were also redirecting them. Instead of coming to the emergency room, they were getting care where they really needed to get care. So the emergency room was getting the benefit of, 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 of that as well, which was so critical, especially for such a busy emergency room. That's amazing. I know we're coming up to the end of our discussion, man. I could literally talk to you for hours, I think. Um, it's amazing. But 
Uh, I like to end this. The thing is, you know, just asking what kind of advice would you give to yourself when you first started, or maybe somebody who's trying to get into um, what you're doing with education, workforce, and you know, just innovating community. Yeah, um, you know, I will tell you when I look at from an advice perspective, the biggest thing I would encourage people to do that made all the difference for me is the power of mentorship. Um, I was fortunate to have, you know, as, as we've talked about phenomenal leaders and mentors. Um, and, and that's what, and that's what I now also have the privilege to do for others. And, um, you know, as you know, healthcare is not easy, uh, nor is education, uh, nor is any of this work. And we need to have groups of, you know, as I call them a personal board of advisors who can help us along the way. Uh, Cause you know, it's not easy. Um, and, there's some great organizations you probably maybe heard of the Advancement League. They're doing incredible work around uh, encouraging, empowering, coaching, mentoring uh, our future leaders in healthcare. And uh, I can't be more proud of the work that uh, Antoine and Alex are doing at the Advancement League. Uh, they both started as fellows uh, in their master's program at Geisinger, um, and now are, are you know working across this country uh, to really provide mentorship and support to the future. Uh, healthcare leaders, whether clinical or non-clinical, we've got to do more of that. We can really, if we're coaches in this work, we can create the best teams of the world. And that's what we need more of. I love that. Um, and I and I completely agree with you on that end, because you can learn from other people's mistakes and not have to make the same ones over and over again. But um, where is what is the best way of people reaching out to you if they have any questions or want to further the conversation? Yeah. Best way is really to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, they'll, they'll see I'm very active there and uh, love to engage. And so feel free to connect right there. Awesome. And I want to thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so glad you reached out to me. And honestly, you've given me hope. And um, that's really the most important thing. So I, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. And thanks for all that you're doing as well. <laughs> I mean, I'm not really doing much, but thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs>